Good morning, everyone. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Is it just me or is it awkward that as you're beginning this new series entitled New Math that you invite an Asian pastor? Is it just me? And that question that Matt asked, like, what's the lowest score? For all the Asians here, it's 99. <laughs> Steve, you can't make that joke next week. It's FYI, only I can make that joke. I was horrible in math. So down goes those stereotypes. Hey, it is a joy and a pleasure uh, to be able to join you again. And I'm um, just, again, looking forward to serving you throughout the course of this upcoming year. Today, as we begin and launch this new series entitled New Math, uh, we're going to be using the board. I've got some props to help illuminate some points for you. But as we do every single Sunday, let's begin as we dig into God's Word. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles or to open your phones, maybe an app. But we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And I want to actually invite you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to keep coming back to this particular parable. Now, this particular passage is entitled, The Parable of the Rich Fool. Listen now for God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, Jesus replied, who appointed me, let me say that one more time, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now let me pause here just for a moment. Many times in the Gospels, when people come and they ask Jesus a specific question, he often skirts that question and opens up a radically different conversation. This is that similar situation. Then he said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Hey, thanks for coming to church. We'll see you guys next Sunday. <laughs> Clearly, this is one of those intense stories. But I love studying the scriptures, even those stories that make us feel a little uncomfortable. Buckle up, because there is good news. 
There is freedom. There is liberation that God is wanting to share with us today. Now, let me just first name the elephant here. Some of you right now might be sitting in your seats going, I don't like it when churches talk about money. And so you might be tempted to sort of check out. You're folding your heart like this and wondering, gosh, I don't like these sermons. Now, let me respond to that with this. Did you actually know that as you read the scriptures from cover to cover, the totality of the scriptures, conversations about money, wealth, and possessions actually happen to be the second most talked about, written about topic in the Bible. Number one happens to be love, which is good news, God's love for us. But the second most talked about topic is about money, wealth, and possessions. To be very specific, there's over 2,300 plus verses in the scriptures that deal with those very topics. Of the 39 parables that Jesus teaches, 16 parables are like this one that surround the discourse conversation about wealth, money, and possessions. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses, to be specific, 288 verses deal with this very topic. This might sound weird, but for me, as a follower of Jesus, I actually think that churches don't talk enough about possessions and wealth and finances. Now, we're going to speak to this. The reason why Jesus is so active speaking directly about this is because underlying the subject of finances, there's actually a much more deep, probing, important issue, and it's the conversation of the heart. It's about a discipleship issue. It's about a lordship issue. Let me draw an illustration here. Sometimes when there are organizations or churches or maybe life coaches that work with individuals, they sometimes speak about something called a, a, a rule of life, values or trajectories or goals that shape how we desire to live our lives. So for the sake of our topic today, I want to speak about a rule of life for us as Christians where we have our faith in Jesus being the very thing that drives everything that we do. If we were to somehow map out the main quadrants of our lives, I would submit to you that one of the main quadrants would be something called the home, our family our marriages, our children, our parents, our siblings. We have something called work or perhaps community. This is a main quadrant of our lives. We have something in a quadrant called passion that defines our sense of skills and our purpose, if you will. The other quadrant I would speak about 
is something called money. Now, some of you might push back and go, that seems a little odd that money would actually have a quadrant in itself. This is actually the reason why we're speaking about this. Sociologists, they tell us that 80% of our time awake, 80% of our time awake is devoted in some way or another to this quadrant. Earning it, spending it, or dreaming about it. Did you guys get that? 80%. This is one of the reasons why I think the scriptures has so much to say about money, wealth, and possessions. Now, if we're not careful, what ends up happening to us as human beings, including followers of Jesus, is that when these elements don't yield and surrender itself to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, they have the possibility of growing in an unhealthy balance. You see, flourishing is when there's synergy behind these things and they all surrender itself in faith to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, it's quite possible that a particular quadrant begins to grow. And it grows in such a way that it begins to infringe on the other quadrants of our lives. And so our marriages, our parenting, our whatever relationship, it becomes incredibly toxic because it's influenced so dramatically by the seduction of money. Perhaps our work, what drives us at work isn't necessarily our passion or our skill sets, but at all costs, we want to make as much as we can. And the next thing you know, there's a imbalance. Jesus actually has something to say about this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says this about this quadrant. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is Jesus. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen carefully. As Christians, we believe that there is no other God besides God. There is no other besides Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the Lord and Savior. And yet, it's quite interesting that as Jesus is teaching in that verse in Matthew, he's telling us that in a broken, fallen world, there is a competitor to the worship of God, and it's something called mammon, the Aramaic word for wealth or money or possessions. And before we know it, this becomes a beast in itself. Now, let me clear this up about money. I grew up hearing that money was the root of all evil. And they quoted 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And as I study the scriptures and that particular section of the New Testament for myself, I realized that it had been misquoted to me. You see, money 
in itself is not the root of all evil. See, let me prove my point. I'm going to bring out some big, hard, single-dollar bills. Do you know why money is not the root of all evil? Because as I took out the money, none of you got scared of this. Woo. You're like, what is this guy doing? It's just single-dollar bills. Uh, You see, it's not evil by itself. None of us are shuddering at the sight of money. But 1 Timothy, if we read it carefully, the distinction is what? For the love of money. You see, money, you could argue, has a level of neutrality, which means it could be used for evil or it could be used for good. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we need to make a decision how we use this neutral element. But if we're not careful, after a while, what the love of money does is that there's a growing hunger, a growing thirst, a growing obsession over this very thing. And after a while, it demands our attention. And the next thing you know, Attention morphs into what? It morphs into what we call affection. Attention morphs into affection. And then lastly, it can morph into something called adoration. That defines something called idolatry. You see how here in this particular illustration, it can grow in such a way, it's not what God intended, but the next thing you know, these quadrants become enslaved to this very thing, and our faith itself becomes enslaved. This is why Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, this is really important. Let me give you another example. Uh, I brought a little miniature toy car, as you can tell. I didn't have the budget to bring a life-size car onto stage. So I need you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that this is a life-size car. Horsepower, torque, leather seats, and it's got some sort of emblem. Maybe it's like your car. Maybe it's a Ford or a Chrysler or a Mercedes or a Tesla or a Hyundai. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not one of those preachers that would say that as Christians, you can only drive certain kinds of car. I just disagree with it. But what I want to speak about is this. When we allow our attention to become affection, to become adoration, we make a dangerous mistake of thinking that material things like a car or anything that you own, an inanimate object actually has the ability to speak to your very soul. Do you guys get that? This is really important. The car in itself isn't bad or evil, 
money in itself isn't bad or evil, but when we think that these elements actually have the ability to speak beauty and dignity, value and truth into our very own lives, that's a dangerous mistake. So listen, this car, when it's all said and done, is a mechanical device that takes human beings from point A to point B. That's what it is. But when we begin to think, I'm now more valuable in the eyes of God, or we begin to judge other human beings by the inanimate objects that they possess, it's a dangerous thing. Listen, church, hear this loud, hear this clearly. There is only one truth. There is only one being. There is only God who can speak to the depths of your soul. Why? Because God created your soul. God knows you. He loves you. And only God can speak into your very heart. So what does this parable have to teach us about new math? Well, let's study this parable. If you have your Bible, keep it focused. I want to draw your attention to verse 15. Verse 15, here lies our first core lesson from our parable. Listen to what it says. Then he, referring to Jesus, said to them, This is before Jesus embarks on the story of the parable. Here's Jesus. Watch out. A little side note. Anytime Jesus says watch out, we should watch out. And then he goes on to say, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Here's lesson one from the parable. Life does not consist of possessions. In many ways, the reason why this speaks so powerfully to me is that it's so countercultural to what I've heard so many times. And if I'm bluntly honest with you, sometimes I get lost in this rat race. What's the adage that some of us may have heard, maybe some of us have uttered these words, and maybe some of us actually live under this adage? It goes something like this. He or she, the one, in the end with the most toys wins. I've heard that countless times. Sometimes I'll drive behind cars with that bumper sticker, the one with the most toys wins. Now, clearly Jesus isn't saying he's against us having possessions, but it's this idea that that's the purpose of our life, to aggregate, to gather, to accumulate. That's called greed. The reason why you and I have a hard time I think in that particular cultural landscape is that there's something called upward mobility. And upward mobility simply says that we should upgrade our life 
at all costs, and it's a good thing. So for example, we always want the bestest, the fastest, the strongest, the mightiest, the largest, the mostest, the most horsepowerfulest, the most blazing CPU processorist, and the list goes on. Isn't it amazing that the phone that you purchased last year, which was so brand new just last year, suddenly as you begin to compare with others, feels old, and you want to upgrade. The reason why upward mobility can be dangerous is because when is enough enough? When do we stop? G.K. Chesterton, who happened to be a 19th century um, novelist, philosopher, theologian, had these profound prophetic words to say about material stuff. In one of his books, he says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more and more. And the other is to desire less. That's the first lesson. Life does not consist of possessions. That's not the purpose of our life. You know, as a pastor, I've had the privilege now, I've been in ministry for about 25, 26 years. And I've had the privilege of being at the hospital to welcome babies and to pray for babies. I've had the privilege even being by uh, the hospital or the hospice care to pray over the last prayer or the last rites over someone during their deathbed. Now, let's just be honest. No matter how young or younger you are, every single one of us here, every single one of us, there will come a time when we will breathe our last final physical breath. And I've had that sacred invitation to be by the deathbed, just again, praying and encouraging, exhorting someone. And one of the questions that I ask people is, are there any regrets that uh, you would love for me to just pray with you about? And what's amazing is that in the numerous conversations I've had, none of the regrets have ever, ever, ever been about possessions. No one has ever said, you know, uh, Eugene, I wish, oh, I wish I had a bigger house. Oh, I wish I had more horsepower in my car. I wish I had more power tools. I wish I had more name brand purses or shoes. Now, again, hear me well. There isn't condemnation or guilt. I'm not knocking those things. I'm just suggesting that the purpose of life, according to Jesus, is not the gathering of possessions. Here's the second lesson that we can learn from our parable. I entitle point number two, the idolatry of self. 
Now, what do I mean by the idolatry of self? The scriptures. Verses 17 to 19, listen to what this character says in the parable. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you guys hear what we just read? There is a hyper focus on the word I. The idolatry of self is a world that revolves around me, myself, and I. And in our Western context, it's very tempting for every single one of us, including myself, to walk away thinking, you know what? It's me. I did this. I'm the one responsible for this. I worked hard. I deserve it. I made this happen. I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm in control. Forget faith in Jesus. I am my own God. Verse 16, you may have missed it. It's an incredible nugget from this parable. Verse 16 says these words. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Did you guys get that? Here's this guy thinking, me, 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 I, 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 I did this. I'm the best. I'm the champion. And Jesus says, you know, the ground It reminds me of the wisdom from Psalm 24, verse 1, that says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it, translation, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. This is the reason why when you wake up tomorrow morning and you're Going about your new week in Chicago land, be careful about how we pray. Sometimes, if you're anything like me, I get into this trap of saying this in my prayer God, here's my hope, my plans, my ambition, my agenda, my Excel sheet. Uh, please revolve around me and now bless it. And our prayer really should be, God, thank you that you are God. And I'm not. And I believe that you're at work. I know that you're already at work. So help me to be a part of what you're already doing. That's point number two. Now, here's the third thing is that in order for us to be able to have flourishing and freedom, we have to speak truth to some of the myths or lies that cause this to grow. 
Now, we don't have the time to speak about many of the myths, but I want to focus on one of them that I think all of us on some level or another have struggled at some point in our life. And it goes like this. Eugene, you don't have enough. And you need more to truly be content. Have you ever said something like that or thought something like that? This morning, I want to tell you, our contentment doesn't rest in stuff. It rests in the truth that our God loves you, that our God knows you, our God sees you, that our God is still pursuing after you. Now, friends, listen. I'm not trying to sound dismissive because I know that in a auditorium, a sanctuary, in a church like ours, it's quite possible, in fact, very likely that there are real issues, real struggles that many of us are going through. Maybe there's unemployment. Maybe there's underemployment. I get that. My wife and I, we have three kids We're in a season right now where we don't have, where I don't have a full-time job. We have two kids in college, and newsflash, college is very expensive. Our youngest is 15 years old. He's six foot one. He's huge, and I don't know what's going on with his body. He literally eats seven meals a day. And I'm afraid that if we don't feed him seven meals a day, he will eat my wife or me. <laughs> so I have to always, like, remind him, um, your mom is tastier. <laughs> now, let me give you some perspective. If you've had at least two meals in the last 24 hours... If you're currently wearing clothing on your body right now, good job. (laughs) Consider yourself from a material perspective very, very blessed. From a material perspective. For example, did you know that 80% of the world live on less than 10 U.S. dollars a day? Did you know that there are 1.2 billion people that live in what development workers call extreme poverty, which is defined as $1.75? 1.2 billion people. Some of you might know that the three wealthiest people in the world are from United States, and they're actually from Seattle. Number one is Jeff Bezos, and two A and two B, I guess two is Bill and Melinda Gates. What you probably did not know is that I also happen to be among the world's wealthiest people. You see, 10 years ago when I was doing some research, I realized that my salary as a pastor then, $68,000 a year, 
it placed me as the 52nd million, 40,162nd richest person in the world. You better respect me. You don't. Now, listen to this. It's a big number, but that puts me in the top 0.86 percentile of wealth in the world. Perspective is so important and needed. You see, listen to this truth. Our contentment does not lie in stuff. It lies in the truth that our God is an awesome God, a gracious God, a loving God, and a good God. And this God is still pursuing after every single one of you. Now let me speak about the last point, and it's this. We need to invest in an eternal kingdom. Now, when we speak about money or mammon, to make it very simple for the sake of illustration, and in the next two weeks, you'll be learning more about these things, but I often tell people there are three ways that we should look at money. We can look at it from a personal level, we can look at it from a practical level, and we can look at it from an eternal level. And yes, I don't like to spell out all of my words. So when we look at personal, it means that God gives us, grants us, is gracious to us, all of us, blessings, whatever they may be, and we're to enjoy them. It's not a bad thing or an unbiblical thing for us to enjoy the blessings that God gives us. There's also a practical element, meaning that God gives us resources so that we can honor the responsibilities and obligations that we have. As Christians, we probably do well on these two levels. Now, the reason why we struggle with these two levels is that sometimes, here's the other myth, we think that our lifestyle has to always parallel or actually exceed our income. That's something called debt. You'll learn about it probably next week. But here's the danger. Our imagination, our thinking, our prayer, we're so involved in these two things that we're rarely talking, speaking, dreaming, praying, imagining about what does it mean to have an eternal mindset, even with our finances. Let me give you an example. Think about your most prized possession. It's okay. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a purse. Maybe it's a shoe. Maybe it's a gadget. Maybe it's a computer. I brought one of my most prized possessions from the past. Okay. I'm dating myself. This was my first phone. It's a Motorola. Dynatrack 8500X. Don't forget the X. The X was the higher version. Every now and then in Seattle, I love driving around pretending as I'm... Hey, man, how are you? Doing all right? Now, listen. 
I love this phone. I'll be very honest because it, I thought it spoke to my soul. It made me more important, more valuable, more significant. That's the danger of possessions. Think about your most prized possession, whatever it might be, your Dynastar 8500X, and I want you to know this. Someday, everything that we own, including our most prized possession, one day is going to a landfill. So here's Jesus saying, what good is it if we're simply investing exclusively only in me, myself, and I, and all of these possessions. Here's Jesus saying, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So here's the question, what lasts forever? What lasts forever? As a brother in Christ, I would submit to you that the word of God lasts forever. The word of God endureth forever. So read it, enjoy it, memorize it, study it, apply it, rejoice in it. The triune God lasts forever. God the Father, Jesus the Son, our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit, our counselor and our advocate. In short, worship the triune God. Now, every day of our lives. And lastly, what lasts forever? I believe human souls last forever. So while we're here on this earth, may we be about the whole gospel as we go about personal, practical, but may we elevate the eternal as well. May we be sure that we're encouraging people to know Jesus Christ. May we be about things that usher in the kingdom of God here on this earth. May we be about the local church and the global church. May we care for missions and justice work. May we be about serving the poor. May Willow Creek always be committed to the care center. May Willow Creek be about bringing sight to the blind, liberation to the captives, as far as I'm concerned, send Matt and the worship team often to that particular jail. Bring compassion to the imprisoned, and the list goes on and on. May you have an eternal vision, a reimagination, a renewal in your mind and heart. Let me close with the final story here. Years ago, I was reading a, um, a magazine. You know what that is, young people? It's, a, it's made out of paper and you flip pages. And I'm reading this magazine and it was called National Geographic. I love National Geographic. I love magazines, books, documentaries about the outdoors, about nature and creation. 
I'm reading an article in the National Geographic, and it was this long article about how um, hunters and researchers trapped monkeys in Eastern Africa. It was quite provocative and challenging, disturbing in some ways. But what these hunters will do is that they'll go to a region in Eastern Africa where there's a high population of monkeys. As they go to the site, they'll gather as many coconuts as they can. They'll gather these coconuts, and as they're going to the site, they'll drill a small hole in the middle of this coconut. Not all the way through, about two-thirds. They'll drill a small hole, and then they begin to pour sweet fermented rice in the center of the coconut. They'll then take rope, tie it, and with the ends, they'll tie the ends on trees. So the next thing you know, you see hundreds of coconuts at this level suspended in air. The hunters go away. But the film crews are running. And the film crew, what they capture is that as the hunters go away, they descend from the trees drawn by the fragrance of the sweet rice. They look around because they're smart animals to make sure that they're safe. They draw closer and closer and closer. Why am I walking like this? They get to the coconut. Look around one more time. It's safe. They'll take their paw and they'll force it. They'll shove it into the coconut. And then they'll grab as much sweet rice as possible. You see what just happened? They tried to take out their hand, but it's stuck. I'm reading this article. I'm emotionally invested. I'm like, monkey, let go of the sweet rice. My wife is staring at me. Are you? okay but here's the thing they will not let go of the sweet rice why because they place more value on the sweet rice than their own freedom friends it's such a privilege to come alongside you and worship with you this year Don't take this the wrong way. I'm not calling you monkeys. I'm suggesting that if you're anything like me, it's possible that there are sweet rices that we just hold on to. And it begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. So here's my question as we close. Can you stand if you're able at this time? Here's my question to you. What is your sweet rice? Take a moment. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is here.
start us on a path of freedom. What is your sweet rice? Everyone clench your fists as hard as you can. On a count of three, just let go. One, two, three. Let this be the first step. The first step of releasing the sweet rice. So Jesus, we thank you so much. We love you. We love you and we thank you that not only do you love us, but you desire freedom and flourishing in our lives. God, we come to surrender our sweet rice, our mamon to you. We pray this because we believe that you are greater than the things of this world. Thank you so much. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.